0: Would you pray with me? Lord of hosts, you are with us. You're with us in the fire. You're with us in the good weather. As we gaze upon the beauty of this place, the mountain outside our window, you are with us here. Thank you, Lord, that you are with us, holding us close to yourself. As Jason prayed, holding us close to your heart. Thank you, Lord, that you are mighty and yet kind, powerful and humble, great and great in love. Oh, Lord, show yourself to us today that whatever we are going through, we would see your face and trust in you because you are those things, transcendent and yet imminent. May we trust in you. May we hear from you today in the midst of everything that we are going through. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The year is 570 B.C. Life as an Israelite is chaotic. Everything, and I mean everything, is uncertain, except perhaps the certainty of adversity. You've been exiled from your homeland for nearly 20 years. In that time, you have not seen many of your relatives, if any at all, and have no idea whether or not They are even still alive. Your nation has dissolved. All of its rulers and leaders having been deported long before you were deported into this new place. Jerusalem, the city of God, has been sacked. And yes, even the temple of the Lord, the symbol of God's presence with his people, has been destroyed. You're at the behest of godless authorities in the midst of a godless culture with a godless morality encroaching upon you from every side, and there seems to be no end in sight. Insecurities and questions litter your heart and mind. Can the Lord restore us? Restore Judah? Will the Lord redeem his people from the hand of the enemy? (laughs) Why would he? And what do I do in the meantime? I have nothing to put my security in. My house can be taken from me at any time. I have no financial security, for our oppressors can take whatever they want, whenever they want, however they want, with whatever reason they want. The local and national politicians can create laws to further subjugate me and my kin and and everyone around me and limit my freedoms, and I have no say in it. They can even restrict or prohibit altogether our religious practices. In the midst of this life of uncertainty and adversity, as you and a few other worshipers gather together, someone pulls out an old, tattered copy of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, who, though he died over a century ago, wrote something to you and to those who are suffering with you. That's right. <clears throat> Not only had Isaiah prophesied to his own generation during his lifetime about what was going to come, that Israel and Judah would go into exile under Babylon, but he had also penned words directly from the Lord to those future exiles, long before they were even a, a, a twinkle in their mother's eye. You see, at the time that Isaiah first Declared these words in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. Things were actually going fairly well for the nation of Judah. Hezekiah was their king, and he was a very good king. He had made sweeping religious reforms in the nation, and had, unlike his father Ahaz, he had heeded Isaiah's counsel not to make alliances with other nations but to trust in the Lord alone for Judah's deliverance, for their protection. And the Lord had indeed delivered them from the tyranny of Assyria under Hezekiah's reign. So things were looking up for everyone. Well, that is until the king got sick. Then there was fear again, but God healed the king. And so everything seemed... Capish Again, the king is going to lead us into a a period, a long period, generations of peace and prosperity. Well, shortly after Hezekiah's healing, some envoys from the nation of Babylon arrived to congratulate the king on his recovery and apparently to also secure an alliance with Judah against Assyria. Hmm. And it appears that Hezekiah complied with this request this time disregarding Isaiah's counsel and defying the Lord for we read in chapter 39 Hezekiah says to he, or Isaiah says to Hezekiah hear the word of the Lord almighty The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, they will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." In other words, because of your disobedience, the days of good times are numbered, and those you sought protection from will once again become your oppressors. To which Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for for he thought to himself, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. (laughs) What? Did, did I just hear that correctly? It's like he's saying, you know, at least there will be peace and security while I'm still king. Who cares about my children and their children and the rest of the descendants of Judah? Nice king, right? So now, instead of a future of hope for their children and children's children, they and their descendants are once again... Facing a future of adversity, oppression, and uncertainty. And so, multiple generations need to hear the Lord's counsel. They need to hear the Lord's words. There were those who are living this good life along with Hezekiah who needed to know what to do for themselves and now their descendants in light of the coming destruction. When will it come? How can we prepare? Their lives are now hedged with uncertainty and fear once again. They just came out of the time of adversity and uncertainty to only now seemingly be walking into another they know not when. And then there are those who will actually undergo this darkness, undergo the exile to Babylon and the destruction of their nation that I started with. When this does occur, many years from now, what do the people of God need to know? What does the Lord want them to know in the midst of the captivity in which they find themselves? In the midst of adversity and uncertainty. Can and will God restore us? Will God redeem his people from the hand of the enemy? Come to think of it, this doesn't sound all too dissimilar to our cares and concerns today, does it? We might not find ourselves in the exact situation as they were in, but we often find ourselves in similar circumstances with similar questions. We are sojourners in modern Babylon. Can and will God restore us. This is not our home. We are citizens of another country with another king. We're surrounded with uncertainty, and we don't like uncertainty. Now do we, precious? When things in life are uncertain and we cannot see the path ahead, we're often filled with fear doubt, lack of hope. We want to be able to trust in those things around us, whether it be people or a job or a great plan that we think we have devised, our living situation, our economy, the government, or any number of other things. We seek out things to trust in so that we can have assurance, certainty about our present and the future. You see, the truth is, is that we want to make alliances with those things rather than trust in the Lord alone. Can't we, can't we do both? Can't Can't we? Trust in the Lord and these other things because these other things, they seem to have a lot of security with them and a lot of certainty. The problem is that those things will let you down. People will let you down. The economy Will let you down. The government is not meant to be a source of security, nor our people, our house, our job, or our plans. We are not to place our trust in those things, but in the Lord alone. God's requirements of His people have not changed. He wanted their sole allegiance and for them to find their hope and trust in Him alone, not in the things that are not trustworthy. And He wants us. He wants us and our sole allegiance and for us to find our hope and trust in Him alone and not in the things that are untrustworthy. And so every generation of God's people has found themselves in the midst of many uncertainties. And the words of Isaiah 40 through 55 are as pertinent to us as they were to the people of God 2,500 years ago. This is part of the beauty and the wonder of biblical prophecy. Biblical prophecy is amazing because of its many dimensions, it is able to communicate imminent truths to people of multiple generations. This means that it's written to and is essential for the immediate audience of Isaiah the prophet, those living at his time, and yet it is also written to and essential for those people decades, even generations later, like us. In Isaiah's instance, it is written to and for those that Isaiah knew and talked to, that they would know what is to come and know how to respond in their lifetime. Yet it was also written to and for those who would be exiles 120 years later. Further, it is also written to and for those in still later generations, for those who lived around the time of Jesus' life. And it was written to all of God's people in every succeeding generation as well. The best illustration I've heard to try and grasp is the mountain view which you guys have been seeing on the screen. We picture Isaiah prophesying to a nearby mountain and yet he speaks not only to concerns or what he says not only concerns the mountain in front of him but has the other mountains in view that are further away. He's speaking one message that has multiple mountain ranges in view. And the content of biblical prophecy not only addresses temporal earthly realities in these different times, but also contains spiritual realities as well. Isaiah speaks of concrete historical realities which also foreshadow future physical and spiritual realities. Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 are filled, filled with all of this. Isaiah prophesies future earthly events concerning the nation of Judah and Israel, as well as of the whole world. He speaks of events that will occur a hundred years from his writings, others half a millennium away, and still others thousands of years into the future, like we are. not only foretells future events, but also provides counsel from God, from those who will undergo those events. And these aren't just truths concerning Judah and Israel. In fact, a great deal of the content in these chapters is also dealing with all of humanity and their need for a Savior. The Savior will come through Judah, but is for all mankind. You see, Judah and Israel are real nations that are undergoing real events in real history, and yet they simultaneously serve as spiritual types and shadows, pointing to the need of each and every human being to trust in the Lord alone for the salvation of their souls. As Israel and Judah need the Lord to save them, So every human being from every tongue, every tribe, every nation needs the Lord to save them. As Israel and Judah needed a Messiah, a Savior, so we need a Messiah, a Savior. And so in these chapters that we will be covering over the next, I don't know, 13, 14 weeks, something like that, we will be seeing portrait after portrait prediction after prediction concerning the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. I'm reminded of the time when Jesus was walking with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we're told, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That would have been boss, I'm just telling you. I want to be that guy walking along. Jesus starts telling me everything. That pointed to me, and that pointed to me, and that pointed to me. Oh, let's open up Isaiah. You want to see me in Isaiah? I'm there. Isaiah is filled with scriptures concerning Jesus. In fact, I I kind of did a little study, and there are more than a 100, it's actually more than 150 direct quotes or allusions to Jesus' in the New Testament of Isaiah. That's a lot. The person of Jesus and his humanity and his deity, his humility and his supremacy are foreseen in Isaiah. The positions of Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king, servant, and Messiah are foreshadowed. The passion of Jesus from his sinless life, his death on the cross, in the place of the elect, taking upon himself the penalty for the sins of all his people that they would receive atonement is foretold through the words and imagery of Isaiah. Wow! I need a little head-exploding thing right there. That's what I should have done. And, as I already indicated, God's words, His counsel through the prophet Isaiah are just as meaningful and impactful for us sojourning in modern spiritual Babylon as it was for those ancient Jews sojourning in national Babylon. And so, what are those words? What is God's counsel to those who are facing or will face adversity and uncertainty? Well, these chapters open with the profound words, comfort. 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 My people, says your God. Hmm. The goal of these 16 chapters is comfort. Wow. The comfort of God's people. In the midst of adversity and uncertainty, he wants his people to be comforted. And so everything contained in these chapters really points back to this idea of comfort. Comfort. They show us how we can be comforted as God's people. Now, what is the rationale for feeling comfort in the midst of adversity and uncertainty? This is not easy to do, is it? Everybody shake their head and say, no. Everybody shake their head and say, no. What is it that we... And they can take comfort in. Well, that's what these chapters answer. Verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. (laughs) I love that word, tenderly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, Israel's only hope is the Lord's breaking into human history. The coming of the Lord God to save them. That alone can bring them true comfort. And this is what Isaiah proclaims the Lord is coming to save his people. This is what they and we need to take comfort in. The Savior is coming. And from our vantage point has come and is coming again. And so, because God is coming, he tells ancient Israel, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight a desert, in the desert a highway for their God. For his glory shall be revealed to them. So get ready. Prepare! He's coming! But there, there's so much more in these lines. Remember, these verses carry this multi generational message. Most of you will recognize that this passage alludes to John the Baptist preparing the way for jesus john the baptist would make straight a highway for the coming of god in the flesh and they would see his glory the glory of the one and only of the only begotten son full of grace and truth as the apostle john says As Paul says, for God who said light light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we too are to prepare the way of the Lord to make straight in this desert a highway for the return of our God in Christ And his resplendent glory on the final day when all flesh shall see it together, shall see the glory of the Lord, for it shall be revealed. As Jesus says, all the tribes of the earth will mourn and every eye will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So prepare, prepare the way. But how were they and John supposed to do this? How do you prepare the way? Well, Isaiah continues, a voice says, cry. And I said, well, what should I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold our God. Shout it. Go on and scream it from the mountains. Go on and tell it to the masses that he is God. Behold your God. Now there are a couple of salient points contained in these lines. The first is that all flesh is grass. Surely the people are grass. I texted Josh this week. I said, hey, what's up, grass? (laughs) Isaiah is here contrasting humanity, its leaders, its creations, its institutions, its promises with that of the promises of God. We might make much of ourselves and our governments and our abilities, but they are grass. <laughs> what is grass? What, what is he? These are metaphors pointing to the frailty, the fleeting, fleetingness, there's a word for you, the fleetingness of humanity, that people and their institutions are transitory. That's a shout out to Rich if he's around here. He gave me the transitory word. They shall end. Surely they and all they say will all wither away as the grass withers and the flower fades. This will happen when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. But contrast this with God's word. God's word is sure because God is sure. What God says will come to pass. What God says is reality. All his promises are yes and amen. And so we must cry out to the people. We must be the herald of good news, of God's unchanging and certain word that brings comfort. And the message we must cry out is this. Behold your God. That's the message. Behold your God. What is it that brings certainty in uncertain times? Beholding your God. gazing upon His greatness and wisdom, His power and His goodness, His beauty and His compassion. We need a vision of the greatness, the holiness, the faithfulness and the power of the Lord our God for our comfort. That is what will comfort us. Him. His greatness. His glory. When we gaze upon the glory of the Lord then we will see what we are going through in its right perspective. And this is what Isaiah does through the elegant, often sublime poetry in these next verses. Bringing out image upon image, metaphor after metaphor to depict for his listeners the undiluted greatness of the Lord God so that they behold their God and are comforted by that vision. Isaiah emphasizes the continuance of this thought of beholding by repeating the word behold. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. The NIV translates these lines. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. And this is really the point of all that is to follow, that God, the one who is coming for his people, is the Sovereign Lord. He comes with power. The Sovereign Lord comes with power. He is sovereign over all. What does that mean? It means that the Lord exercises utter, complete, total, comprehensive, whatever word you want to use. Rule over all things He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be defeated. He cannot be inhibited or limited. He rules with a mighty arm. What will follow in the stanzas below is a poetic description of this mighty arm and inexorable rule. That's a good word, isn't it? I like words. Big words that convey awe. You know why? Because God is awesome. His rule is inexorable. <laughs> but listen to these next lines, okay? You're like, okay, he's going to be big. Yes! But he goes to the character of this sovereign rule. He says, behold... His reward is with him and his recompense before him. In other words, it is just. Just what, you might ask? No, just. That is, there is no injustice in his sovereign rule. Those other nations and people might oppress and might subject and might do everything they do unjustly not the Lord. He will deal justly and will show no partiality in his judgment. But it's not merely a just world. For listen to these next lines. Drink this in. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What, what a picture! What a picture! Look at how his mighty arms treat those under. His care. He enfolds them. He gathers them. He gathers his lambs and holds them closely to him, to his bosom, and gently leads them. His bosom is a metaphor, it means close to himself, near to his heart. It suggests kindness, nearness, intimacy. That is his heart toward his people. This is not a tyrannical rule, but a kind and compassionate, tender-hearted, deeply devoted love and care For his people. So I was meditating upon this. I was reminded I was reminded of a lot of songs, by the way. But of the song Awesome God from Rich Mullins. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. There's the sovereignty. He reigns from heaven above. How does he reign? With wisdom. Power and what? Love. Our God is an awesome God. Isaiah's like, I'm not done, though. I'm going to tell you more about this, I'm going to expand on these ideas. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? I'd like to know. He wasn't saying, "I like to know," was he? Isaiah is wanting his readers to envision the bigness of God. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. His grandeur, his enormity. Listen to the repetition. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured the heavens? Who has measured every grain of sand, the dust, the dirt of the earth that forms the mountains? Who? Nobody. We cannot measure these things for they are so completely beyond our grasp. I've told many of you that Jen and I are getting ready to go to the ocean and you sit there and you hear the waves crashing, shaking the ground as you're sitting there. And you get the sense of small. And yet, a sense of peace at the same time. It's so big. And I'm just seeing a little, bitty, bitty, bitty piece of the ocean. And it's powerful. Millions, billions of gallons of water that I'm staring out at, listening to crash against the rocks. It's just a little speck compared to the rest of the oceans. How many gallons of water are in the seas? How much dirt comprises our earth? How many stars are in the heavens? And how much space is in the universe? Can you measure them? Everybody say? Good job. If anybody said yes, come see me afterward, please. They are truly immeasurable, as is the Spirit of the Lord. You see how he goes there? Who can measure these things? Who can measure the Spirit of the Lord? He is beyond fathoming. He is incomprehensibly mighty, vast, immeasurable, infinite. And his understanding, his understanding is all of these things. You know, everything that we know is derivative. That is, we have come to know it because of revelation to us, whether through our senses or through someone teaching us. But the Lord, but the Lord, who taught him? How did he come to his understanding? He didn't. He did not come to an understanding at all. For all knowledge, wisdom, and understanding derive from Him. His nature, His character, is the origin of all knowledge, of all wisdom, of all justice and understanding. He was not taught by anyone, but is the teacher of everyone. He is the omniscient one, knowing and decreeing all things everywhere at all times. I was talking to someone, I don't remember who it was, just the other day, I think last Sunday. And I said, you know, isn't it a reassuring thing that God never says, don't, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) God is never taken by surprise. He's never caught off guard. He knows all things perfectly and gives perfect Council at all times. Verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. <laughs> the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, He takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Isaiah now applies these characteristics of God's sovereign rule to Israel's setting. To being under the thumb of Babylon, this great mighty nation. After having been under the thumb of Assyria, that great mighty nation, after having been Under the thumb of Egypt, that great, mighty nation. Nation after nation, threatening, oppressing, enslaving. And yet, God says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. They are nothing before him. Nothing! That means they have no say. They cannot thwart God. They are like the ant looking up at the big boot, raising his arm or tentacle, saying, no! God takes no account of them. So, why are you afraid, O Israel? So, why are you afraid, O Hope Chapel, of what the government can or might do? They are the ant. God is the boot. And Isaiah is just getting started. Let's go. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Really? What are you going to compare with God that it might seem as big or as powerful or as wise or as just as God? What or who is there? Nothing. Are you going to create an idol? Or do you think that these nations and rulers and peoples who have idols, who worship things other than God, can hold a candle to God? Do you really think the deities of the godless are as mighty as God? That's what he's asking. Verse 19, an idol. A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for it silver chains he made it he made it shiny ooh it's shiny he who is too impoverished for an offering <laughs> chooses wood that will not rot he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move doesn't it sound like he, he's doing that Elijah thing. Or Elijah thing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your God. He mocks the idols because they are idols. They have no reality about them other than their physical subsistence, which, by the way, is held together by the Lord, and which was formed and fashioned. You know, if you have to have someone form and fashion something for you, Hey, make it like me, with all the qualities I like. Oh, oh, and by the wood, by the way, choose a wood that's not going to deteriorate too quickly. <laughs> really? And you want to worship this thing? You want a God who's not going to deteriorate too quickly? And then Isaiah says, after crafting it, they set up the idol that will not move. He had to have been laughing when he wrote this, right? That idol that you have finally crafted, you set it up. Okay, come on. You can do it. The idol isn't going to move unless you move it. Do you see the problem? It is powerless to do anything, it's inanimate. It has no ability, and therefore, no power or ability. To make any difference in your life or for those nations, it can do nothing for them. Nothing. What is nothing? According to Aristotle, it is that which rocks dream about. And you are scared of this lifeless powerless idol that is somehow going to thwart God? The God who holds you close to his bosom? Come on! Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth. Isaiah then appeals to their knowledge that they have been taught from the very beginning. And that knowledge that has been apparent to all people from the very creation of the earth. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. What do they say? Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. (laughs) The imagery is vivid here. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. The picture is of a ruler on a throne, sovereignly ruling over all of the events that take place under his dominion. All of the events of the heavens are the work of his hands what Isaiah is saying. He stretches them out. He spreads them like a tent. And so, what part do the rulers of the nations play in this? Did you see the president going up, flying up, getting out of his plane, trying to stretch the heavens a little further? No! Are, are the rulers the ones that determine the course of events? Are they on the throne, or is the Lord God on the throne? It is he, verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Hmm. Barely have they been enthroned as an earthly ruler before they are dethroned by God. Here's that grass metaphor again with God blowing on it once again. The grass withers when God blows upon it all he has to do, Bye-bye. and they wither. Isaiah is speaking of the rulers of the earth. He then contrasts the rulers and their power once again with the power of the sovereign Lord of the universe. He says. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like them, says the Holy One. Okay? So what I want you to do is lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He's speaking about the stars here. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Now, you've heard me talk about the heavens before, and yet hopefully it never gets old. It doesn't get old in thinking about them or looking at them for me. Ask Dr. Lyle, who's spent tens of thousands of hours looking through a t- telescope and yet, do you ever talk to him about going stargazing? He turns into a little kid. He's like, yes, let's go. I got a telescope. Now, on a clear night, when you're a fair distance away from all of the lights of this city, you'll be able to see the Milky Way galaxy. Any of you seen the Milky Way? Beautiful, isn't it? This is a galaxy of which we are a part. As you gaze up at that little hazy cloud, what you are seeing is actually several million suns, stars, along with star clusters and nebula and that little hazy cloud. <laughs> There's so much more beyond that. I remember one time when Dr. Lyle and I were stargazing and he was able to bring into focus the Andromeda galaxy. He turned to me and he said, uh, what you're looking at is the largest thing you will ever see. There through the lens, we were looking at over 100 billion, with a B, suns. One. Hundred billion stars, many of them thousands of times larger than our own sun. And the Andromeda galaxy is just one of billions of galaxies filled with hundreds of billions of stars. And Isaiah says, and the Lord brings each of them out, calling each and every one of those stars by name. I had a hard time remembering the names of two people I had met a couple weeks ago. He knows all of them. He called them by name. He brought them into existence. Demonstrating his power. He is God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns. From heaven above, with wisdom, power, and love, our God is an awesome God. This is the God who is coming for you, O Israel. This is the God who is coming for you, Hope Chapel. Therefore, Isaiah now turns to his listeners. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. They were looking at the hard adversities that were coming, that had come, When things do not go as expected, when our future or even our present is clouded with uncertainty, and we do not know where our next meal will come from, or how we'll make rent, what our mar- wh- whether our marriage will make it another month, or our dearly loved ones will make it through the sickness. it is then that we tend to blame God and we blame him because we are trusting not in him but in earthly treasures. Why is God disregarding my plight? We ask. We look around us in our circumstances and we judge God according to our wisdom, our understanding, our judgment. We think that he must have abandoned us And so we turn to make alliances with the world. And God responds, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, His understanding is unsearchable. In other words, in the midst of these things, remember who God is. As you once beheld Him, so behold Him again. He is the everlasting God who is present to you every moment, past, present, and future. He is and always will be God over all, the eternal one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Further, he is the creator of everything. The ends of the earth is an idiomatic expression, meaning everyone and everything everywhere. Now, it's not hard to remember, is it? There is nothing in the earth or on the earth or above the earth that was not created by God and is therefore under his sovereign rule. Gee, this is beginning to sound a lot like Paul's description of Jesus in Colossians 1, isn't it? Everybody say, yep. He is the firstborn, the ruler of all creation. For by him were all things made in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. The Lord does not, therefore, faint or grow weary. His sovereignty has not been exhausted. His power over all things, every nation and person, over the weather and the seas, the principalities and the powers, continues uninterrupted and just as comprehensive as it was when he created it his arm does not grow weak he doesn't expend energy I know we do we have a hard time comprehending that don't we I'm tired I'm going to go home and take a nap after this God doesn't take naps he doesn't need to all power is contained in him, and he doesn't expend power. He is power. His arm cannot be weakened. He has and always will be in utter, total control with indomitable power. That one's for you, baby. We were talking about indomitable. That's another good word, isn't it? Spelled with a T, by the way. And so... Even though you are struggling, are fearful in the midst of adversity, and can find no certainty in the things of this life, remember that the Lord, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Hmm. Chew on that. These are some of the most beloved and treasured words in all of Scripture. In the midst of a dry and weary land, in the midst of modern Babylon, in the midst of fear, adversity, and uncertainty, the Lord will increase and renew our strength so that we soar above it all. We will run and not be weary, we will walk and not faint. This is our comfort. This is our hope. If, if we wait upon the Lord, the Lord who we have beheld through Isaiah's words, the Lord who is the everlasting God, who is eternal, uncreated, completely self-contained and self-sufficient, the great I am who is innately perfect and has no want, lack or need who has always been and always will be, who is neither created nor can he be destroyed. He is neither the subject to time nor to its effects. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God, the Lord who is the creator of the ends of the earth, who made all things and without him nothing was made that has been made, who is the origin and apex of all love and beauty and pleasure and delight on this earth. Any beauty that we see is derivative of his beauty, It's a reflection. It is reflecting. It's a mirror to his beauty. Any pleasure or delight that we feel is derivative of his goodness, his kindness, his glory, his power. The Lord, whose understanding no one can fathom, he knows all persons, places, things, and events exhaustively. He not only knows all that has happened, but all that is happening and all that ever will happen. He knows every possible contingency, but he doesn't know them contingently. He cannot learn or forget, be surprised or deceived. This is the sovereign Lord who rules with a mighty arm. He is the infinite source of all power in and of himself. His power is without limit and is inexhaustible. He can do anything he wants to do whenever and however he wants to do it. He cannot be controlled, overthrown, defeated, thwarted, inhibited, or limited. It is he who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and stretches out the heavens, who brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. And he holds you close to his bosom. These mighty arms, they hold you close. This is my beloved. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. It is he who tends his flock like a shepherd and gathers his lambs in his arms and carries He looks upon you with compassion and kindness, love and goodness. It is to him that we must turn. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In Christ, the solid rock. And the Lord God in Christ, the solid rock. We stand. Don't look to politicians or to world rulers, to Biden, to Trump, to Putin. Do not look to Colorado Springs next mayor. Don't look to your employer or your landlord. Don't look to the state of the economy or to the moral state of the union. All of these things, All of these things are untrustworthy. So that, that great? There's a so that because he's the sovereign ruler. He made all these things untrustworthy. So that you trust in the one who is trustworthy. The Lord, God in Christ. Trust in him, and you will be comforted. I end with David's words. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This I know, that God is for me. This I know, that God is for me. Everybody repeat that with me. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that those would be our words. David's words Would be our words. And God, I trust that we would know, Lord, that you are for us, that we would gaze into your power, your splendor, your majesty, your holiness, your righteousness your greatness and enormity, that we would gaze at you, O God, and have a vision of you that our hearts would be comforted in the midst of every circumstance that we are going through now, O Lord, and that we will go through. Thank you for those, because in them we see their untrustworthiness so that we can trust in you the one who holds us with his mighty, mighty arms close to his heart. May we take assurance and comfort in this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.